We are a go. Um, good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us this morning. We are Are You There, God? It's Kira and Phil, and I am Kira Austin Young, priest in charge of St. Anne's Episcopal Church in Nashville. And Phil Duvall is. Hi, I, I unmuted just in time. And I'm Philip Duvall. I'm rector of Church of the Redeemer in the Queen City, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and we have a special guest with us our first our first ever guest kira i know our well i was a guest and now, now I'm that's a, a good point yeah no pressure no pressure on you uh oh i'll let you kira would you like to introduce our friend um yeah in fact i will sort of let her introduce herself but we are so excited to welcome the right reverend susan brown snook uh bishop of san diego to our show this morning and a special thank you because she is in california and it is quite a bit earlier there than it is where uh, Phil and I are. That's right. You got me up early. Yes. And um, yeah, it's it's great to be here. And I didn't realize I was your very first guest ever. And now I feel extra pressure. Yeah, well, I'll uh, no pressure. I'll tell you that the funny thing is, so Kira was the first person I ever had on the show that wasn't, it was just me. So we were doing the, we started in the pandemic and I was like, what's a way that I can just connect with some folks from the parish and maybe outwards beyond the parish throughout the week while we were all still homebound. And, I, and I, I used to do this thing in my old church in California on Periscope where I would just jump on and people would just ask me questions and Periscope is gone. So we'll do it on YouTube live. And so I would get out and for an hour, respond to people's questions and just sort of talk at the camera. And I was just like, I may be an extrovert, but I would love to have someone join me on this. And Kira had seen the show a couple of times and Kira has written a phenomenal uh, book called Pro-Choice and Christian. And it's a really thoughtful, really well done book that churches can use as a resource. And I'd never, I thought, what if we, what if we just two priests talked about abortion and saw how that went? And so I invited Carrie on for one episode and we ended up talking about her book for three or four episodes. Three, yeah. <laughs> you know, not at all a loaded topic or anything. So <laughs> it deserved more than an hour of our time, honestly. I mean, we could do it for a whole season or more, but anyway, after four or five episodes of having her on, I was just like, could you just keep coming back? This is more fun. So, but that's to say, don't worry, we're not going to make you the co-host today. Okay. We're glad to have you with us. And it's fantastic. Um, so Susan, what would you like to, you, what would you like to tell us? Uh, would you like us to talk about you or would you like to talk about yourself? Well, I can give the, the, um, the two cent version of my, yeah. my biography. So um, let's see. Uh, I was, uh, ordained to the priesthood in 2003 after a career as a CPA. Um, and uh, let's see, um, family-wise, I'm married. I have two daughters. They're grown now. They're both in their 20s. Um, I, uh, I was a priest in the Diocese of Arizona. I served as a curate and then an associate rector in two parishes um, and then uh, went off to plant a church. So I was the church planter at Church of the Nativity in Scottsdale. Um, I started in 2006 and I was there until 2017. Um, and during that time, we moved from an elementary school cafeteria to an office building to a building we built ourselves and uh, became a parish and so forth. So that was a great um, a great joy and a, a great wonder to watch it grow and prosper. And then in 2017, I left Nativity, uh, became canon for church growth and development in the Diocese of Oklahoma. And then in 2019, I was elected bishop here in San Diego. So I've been here for a little over two years, which have been not the two years that I expected. 
Was your consecration, did your consecration take place during the, the beginning of the pandemic or was it? No, no, I was, it was in uh, June of 2019. Okay. Um, so we had the whole grand shindig. It was actually in our cathedral. Many of the places are in giant assembly halls yeah. or whatever. I loved doing it in the cathedral and mm -hmm. I loved everything about it that I can remember, but it's sort of like my wedding. I don't remember all that much of it. <laughs> It's true that the consecrations that I've been to for the bishops of Los Angeles, one was at like the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, yeah. where they did the Oscars, of course, Los Angeles. Um, and then one was in like a convention center. Yeah. So how beautiful and fantastic to actually have it in a in your cathedral. It was amazing. That's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Limited the the uh, attendance somewhat, but you know the cathedral seats about six hundred people, and then they have their great hall, and they had another couple hundred there. So it was great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so you've been, so now you're a Californian, turns out. I am. I've registered like to vote and everything. Already voted in the recall election. Oh, yeah. Good for you. There's Thank you for big, doing that. Thank you for your service. Things going on in California these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, do you find yourself rooting for the Padres? Of course. Yes. There you go. There yeah. you go. I love it. I love it. I, I went uh, to a Padres Dodgers game uh, a couple of weeks ago with my husband and my daughter and son-in-law. And so three of us, my daughter and son-in-law who live in San Diego and I were voting, were rooting for the Padres, but my husband wore his Diamondback shirt and, you know, <laughs> we I mean, but people were very polite about it. <laughs> he's not the Bishop of San Diego. Right. Yeah. He can wear whatever he wants <laughs> to wear. Yeah. Right. That's when, when, when my, when my wife like posts things that, I mean, she posts things on social media. It's like, She's not the rector of this church, except whatever she wants to say. Right. She's got nothing to prove. <laughs> Get over it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, well, we do, uh, the, the, we're going to have, we have some questions for you, but the, the initial sort of uh, uh, premise of this thing that we do is that we let other people ask us questions, sort of like everything you ever wanted to know about such and such, but we're afraid to ask, and hopefully we can talk about it. So having a bishop on, obviously we're probably going to get some bishop questions over in the chat, and we also already have some bishop questions, uh, some bishop directed questions um, that have been sent to us on Facebook. Um, and I, I'm not actually gonna start with the first one. I wanna actually start with um, a later one. And I'm just gonna ask you all and see what you think. Um, this is, by the way, there are two questions here from a woman who's listening right now named uh, Kathy Baggett. And Kathy is a lay person um, in my diocese. And she and I served on standing committee together. Um, so she's a very involved and a, a layperson who's been committed to the diocese um, on, on, on parish level and diocesan level for many, many years. But we are, as you may know, a diocese in transition. Mm -hmm. Our bishop diocesan retired at the end of last year, and we just um, elected a, a, a Wayne Smith, retired bishop of Missouri, as our provisional bishop, and he just began not even two weeks ago. So he doesn't get to be the first bishop on our show because he just jumped in. We're going to give him some time to acclimate. I think we, we also decided that we didn't want a bishop that actually had canonical authority over us. 100% true. 100% true. Yeah, you know that what you're doing right now is public, right? Your bishop. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's true. It's true. We, we, our bishops would have to figure out how to find it, but that's true. That's true. So, so, um, but, but she was asking, Kathy asks this question. She says she's heard some conversations questioning the effectiveness of the historic hierarchical, and she says, parenthetically, and frank, frankly, paternalistic 
leadership model in the church. What impact do you think the increasing number of women bishops might have on it, might, like, might have on the way that people view the episcopacy and on the structure of dioceses? Do you think that that's, uh, that, I don't know, that was her question that I thought, as we're looking at this, if you see is this, that, that it might have a specific impact on the way that dioceses are run, the way that, that we understand ourselves. Yeah, well, you know, um, first of all, I think that in the Episcopal Church, our model of leadership looks more hierarchical than it actually is. So um, I, I actually can decree that, you know, I want such and such to happen, but it's not going to happen mm. until my standing committee and my uh, executive council approve it. And, uh, and I have to, w one of the one of the things I have discovered about exerting the kind of power that I have is a big part of exerting that power is deciding when not to yeah. and when to recognize that your own power is limited by the power that our constitution and canons and our, our church gives to other people appropriately because we have a shared governance model in the Episcopal church. And so um, when people look at the fact that we have bishops um, in a sense, it is hierarchical, but I have limited, I have real power and authority, but it's limited in certain senses. So um, if you uh, were a rector in my diocese, I couldn't just uh, come in there and fire you. You know, I, there's, there are rules around that, you know. Um, it, I, I can't just say, we're going to now spend a million dollars on X, my pet project, because there are rules around that. So, um, uh there is a hierarchy, literally, because hierarchy is a word that means rule by clerics, priests, etc. Um, but it is it is specifically limited by the way our church operates. Um, that said, I I I know that there's um, there is a different way that people have responded to that hierarchy in the past. So, as in, like, even if the rules are the same across dioceses culturally how they're lived out. That and uh, the way people respond to individuals. So mm. um, I was a canon in the Diocese of Oklahoma and my bishop was Bishop Ed Konesny. Um, one of the, okay, so Bishop Ed is six feet six and, uh, you know, intimidating in all kinds of ways, although he has a heart of gold and it's just a soft-hearted person, you know, very loving and so forth. Anyway, um, but people respond to him in a different way than they respond to me. And so when I was elected bishop, um, he said to me, you shouldn't wear that purple shirt thing, you know, and he never wears a purple shirt except at general convention. Um, and I said, you know, Ed, because once he, once I was elected bishop, I got to call him Ed and not Bishop Ed. Um, I am not six foot six and I'm not male. People are going to respond to me differently um, because, and, and women have to have to claim their authority in a different way than men do. So there is a difference in the way people regard uh, bishops, even if their, um, their stated kind of uh, structures of power are the same. Um, and as far as whether the uh, increasing number of women bishops being elected will change the way power is exerted, um, I think probably so. Um, I, I will say in province eight, um, 
almost every what's bishop. A pro- hold on, for those who are sorry, in the US, sorry. what's a province? province? <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's a division. So, oh, gosh. It's I a know. Church, um, geographically. So province eight in the Episcopal Church is composed of all the dioceses from, say, uh, Arizona to Alaska. It includes Hawaii, Taiwan, you know, so it's all the West. It's a huge geographical area. Um, in province eight, um, every bishop elected before Gretchen Rayburg was a, was a man, except for Diane Bruce, who was a suffragan in LA. Every, every bishop elected, at least since I was elected in 2019, has been a woman. So there's this huge difference between the older bishops and the newer bishops. And um, I have noticed ways that we approach problems differently. And it may be because the women bishops are all new and we're sort of learning this job together and confronting similar problems of how you enter into a system and become the leader of that system. Um, but I think, and, and so maybe, you know, entering into system, it's always a challenge getting um, recognized as the leader and so forth. Um, I do think that women have had enough experience of being not respected as leaders um, that they may be more open to bringing out the leadership of others. I say that with caution um, because, uh, you know, during the walkabouts, um, somebody asked me a couple different times, I was asked, you know, what do you bring to this role as a woman that a man wouldn't bring? And I'm, I... I don't want to like feed into stereotypes. I, I don't want to go around saying I'm more collaborative or whatever, um, because uh, I, you know, I think there are certain skills and gifts that we all need to learn as leaders. And I don't want to say that Phil doesn't doesn't know how to collaborate. Or, or that I shouldn't yeah. have to learn how to collaborate. Yeah, right. Like give, <laughs> well, give the like... guy, oh, he's a guy, he'll never figure it out. That's actually yeah. not. <laughs> Right. right. And there are um, also, you know, I mean, there are plenty of women who aren't collaborative leaders or who, right. you know, aren't like naturally pastoral or whatever kind of people think about right. what women clergy might be like versus male clergy, some of whom are great pastoral, you know, great pastoral presences and yes. collaborative leaders. So, yeah, I think that's a hard um that's always a hard question to answer without steering into generalizations that it right. may mostly be true. But they're like there are a reason that they exist but like certainly you're working with individuals when you're like electing a bishop so yeah. um, the gender that that inhabits like may or may not influence yeah. those characteristics right. right um but i but it is so women clergy do naturally come to this with the experience of not being completely respected, um, which That's means a- that that we can, uh, in some ways, empathize with others who are not completely respected. Um, so, I mean, that I I came to the priesthood late enough that I didn't I didn't encounter huge issues, right. but I do. I mean, several things like when I was first ordained, people who would duck out of my communion line and go to the male priest line, or yeah. um, or uh, you know, people who thought I couldn't be a church planter because that would be just a huge disadvantage as a woman, or you know, people now in my own diocese who don't believe that I'm validly ordained, or you know, um, we do bring that experience of uh, of uh, not being respected to the ministry 
which in some ways might open up our eyes to the experience of other people, um, which I think is important. And, and we all in the church need to depart from the idea that the church is, is a top-down organization where the people on top tell everybody else what to do, because that is not the way we flourish in ministry in the church of Jesus Christ. You've really helped me today, like think through just how much I mean, how much privilege I experience in terms of like men can do the thing where they're like, I don't really feel like wearing my collar. And it's a, or, or they'll be like, you know, like, or if I wear my collar, no one questions it. Mm -hmm. But if, but you wear coll a collar and people ask you why you're wearing it or right. yeah, <laughs> basic questions of like, well, what do I call you? Yeah. You know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, I get the, what do I call you questions too, from, from your, the pro from your everyday Protestants, the Protties ask that question, but, but like, it's, it's mostly because they're like a person in a collar, but it is definitely different. Like I, I always think about, I could get in a time machine and step back into any time in this country's history and they'd make me a priest, you yeah. know? And so that, and I, and so there are things that I don't even think about in terms of, so, I mean, just even your presence in that, that's really helpful. But I also yeah. really appreciate you saying like, no, actually the structure of our church is okay. It's set up for accountability. Do we live into it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that is a challenge for every bishop. Uh, you know, a bishop can come in and say, look, I'm in charge here and, you know, everybody's going to do what I say. And as long as they like him, yeah. usually, you know, in the past of him, um, that they will probably fall into line, you know, but, yeah. but I think part of, part of the discipline of exercising or possessing powers to figure out how to exercise it appropriately and when not to, and when to bring in others. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting to watch how different bishops kind of around the church have dealt with the pandemic. I mean, and even looking at right now, you've got some bishops that are instituting vaccine mandates for not only their diocesan staff, but for their clergy. And, um, you know, whether or not that's like, is it allowed or, you know, is it a pastoral directive or like all the different kind of words we use in the church for like the bishop telling you to do something. Um, but it's been interesting to see how different bishops are live into that authority, whether, you know, it, it, they use more of the persuasive power or whether it's like a more of a mandating power uh, to, yeah. to get people to to do what may be safer. <laughs> right. And that, you know, the pandemic has, has uh, brought up all those questions of what is my actual authority? Do I have the authority to say we will not have indoor worship? Uh, you know, when the canons say the rector's in charge of worship in the, in the congregation. And yet um, most of our clergy have understood that this is an emergency situation. They've respected that. Um, we did uh, just last weekend, uh, our, our council passed a vaccine mandate for diocesan staff and uh, for uh, diocesan events. Mm -hmm. And I, I maybe could have just issued that as an edict myself. Um, it probably would have been respected, but it, but it was my decision that it, it would be good to gather the council behind that. Mm -hmm. So that's again, a question of how do you exert your authority and how do you hand it off to other people? So, so I have never been a bishop, um, um, and that's really lovely. 
but I, I, I have found myself because I've been on, I'm on serving on standing committee during this time of transition and, and paying attention a lot to how the things that you're describing, the dynamics, the, the, the guidelines, but also the specific, you know, rubrics. And um, like we were, we were the, I was part of the ecclesiastic authority for, for a nine month period of time, um, which was um, interesting. Um, and so all of the different pieces to that. Um, um, but uh, I bring that up to say, I, while it is different, I see so many similarities between simply being a rector at a church where of course there are, there, we, have, we have a similar thing where we have it written in that there is this partnership between clergy and lay, mm-hmm. between vestry and rector or vicar and, and, and bishop's committee, but we, and, and it's all there and we can live into it. And some churches do, and some churches do like, quote unquote, father knows best, they say, and that sort of, you know, yes, yes, father, yes. And other places are like, I mean, I, I, I work at a church where someone came on a Bible study once from a friend from, from St. Louis, and they said, good morning, good morning, father. And someone else from my, it was a Zoom Bible study, and someone else from this church was like, okay, cut that out right now. Like, we're not having any of that nonsense here. Like, we're Church of the Redeemer. You can call him Phil. Like, but that's like the culture at this place, right? But I think about like on a diocesan level is, is like on a parish level where you, are, you have these things that are written in, but then it, it really does boil down to how we, how we treat the people that we work with and, and what kind of consensus we want to build and what kind of relationships that we cultivate doing this work. It's relational. Right. And I'm, I'm guessing it's the same on a bigger scale, but it's the same idea for bishops. Yes, uh, you know, I am thankful to have a council and a standing committee that we all we all look at, at this as a team project and and it is not an adversarial relationship. But if if the history of the church of the congregation or the diocese has brought people into an adversarial expectation, then working together as a team is is much harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just a story about, hey, we're not calling you. Yeah, Father. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, at, at Nativity, uh, you know, we went through our whole history and everybody just called me Susan, almost everybody, uh, not children. They, uh, but then my uh, male associate was ordained and they started calling him Father Wayne. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. We're not calling right. him Father and me Susan. Susan we're not right. doing that. We had to go through a whole thing. I mean, discussing it on the vestry and everything else. Um, so yeah, that's oh just goodness. another example of those uh, gender expectations. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you have a, just, a, I'm just curious, did you, when, when you were a priest, did you have a preferred uh, honorary uh, or whatever, honorific yeah. uh, a pastor or, or, or mother or, or reverend or what did you, what was your? I normally went by, um, Pastor Susan, yeah. and and that was because I was ordained uh, in 2003, and people hadn't really decided, you know, what the thing is. People seem to have decided it's mother now, yeah. but um, I I also don't think parental images for clergy are particularly helpful. So I was really trying to go with pastor. If I were being ordained today, I would go with mother because that's kind of what the church has decided. Right. I didn't realize the church had decided that. Kira is. I, did you know that? I I mean I think that is sort of generally like I'm I don't know if the church has decided no sure no well I mean it's the Episcopal church so we're all over the map yeah right? no but, I mean usually but, when, when people ask me I'm like you know you can call me Kira because we're siblings in Christ and siblings call each other by their first names but if you prefer to call me by a title because that you know you want to 
have that level of respect or distance or whatever with me. Like I prefer mother Kira. So yeah. people call me both, you know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> just wait till you have a male associate come in and see what happens. And then you're like, okay. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's mother Kira. That is super helpful. I will say it is, it is interesting to me that it's actually some of my younger parishioner. I mean, my, my age or around my age parishioners that, that prefer the title. So, um, that's, kind of a an interesting thing to me to notice <laughs> yeah interesting yeah um should, should we ask her some more bishopy questions kira yeah i guess i would love to hear about um just i mean you've talked a lot about kind of collaborative leadership and and how that may have played into sort of your success at church planting and not only as a church planter yourself but the work you um are doing or hope to do barring pandemic related complications uh, in the Diocese of San Diego? Well, uh, church planting is a team project. Um, I, it, I mean, there are, there are churches that have been planted mostly in other denominations that are based on the uh, charisma and the personality of the leader. I think that's a recipe for creating something that will not outlive the leader. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I believe that the first task of the church planter is to create a team um, and the team works together to plant a church. And that's what the body of Christ is all about. We have many members and those members have many gifts and without the gifts of every person, it doesn't function. And so um, that's why church planters spend a whole lot of time when on the surface, you can't see anything happening, but underneath what they're doing is um, meeting people and, and forming them into a team. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in, uh, in our, our diocese, you know, I've already talked about the need to bring, you know, for everybody to bring their gifts and to work collaboratively. But the interesting thing about leadership is it's not a matter of just sitting in a group with, uh, you know, some people and everybody throwing their ideas into the circle. The leader actually gets to set a vision and invite people into it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so when I when I uh, came here and you know in the walkabouts and everything else, I was very clear on what my vision was, and um, my my vision is to invite the church into re thinking where we are in the world and moving from a narrative of decline to a narrative of mission. And so um, as I, I was telling uh, the two of you earlier before we went live, I think, um, you know, the Diocese of, of San Diego suffered greatly from the sexuality wars, lost a number of churches and so forth, and was greatly weakened by it. So, you know, some churches were closed, some buildings were sold and so forth. Um, and uh, when I came in, I, you know, people would say, well, we know we have too many churches for the number of Episcopalians. And I would say, yes, you are right. But we don't have enough churches for the number of people that need to hear the good news of Jesus and need and need what the Episcopal Church has to offer. Um, and and so we need to we need to stop seeing ourselves as this thing that, you know, everybody's getting a little bit older and so forth. And eventually it's going to just fade out and we just need to, you know, circle the wagons until the final uh, person has died out. 
we need to actually <laughs> read the Bible, which is all about seven sending 70 yeah. because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And we need yeah. to actually do what Jesus has called us to do. And, you know, in Southern California, there is, there is no reason that a church should have, you know, 20 elderly Anglos in it, lovely as they are. Sure. In the middle of a community full of, you know, just bursting with, you know, other kinds of people, young people, Latinos, Asian Americans, you know, just so yeah. many people that we've created this little, this little holy club and we're not letting other people into our club. And, you know, and then we're wondering why it's, why it's dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's because we don't have the vision. Our vision is, you know, we just have too many churches for the number of Episcopalians. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think, okay. So I've been preaching this lately. Um, I think that for the last 70 years, um, that the church has been able to just relax, just say, you know, we are a provider of religious goods and services, um, the bulk of which happen on Sunday morning. And so if we open our doors, they will come in because they like our brand of the goods and services that are providing more than the one down the street. Because, and if we just beef up our newcomer ministries and have good music, then everything will be fine. Um, and uh, so we've, you know, um, informally come to see our mission as providing Sunday worship. And that is part of our mission. I mean, we are called to glorify God and worship, yeah. but, but at, the, at the heart of it, our mission is to make disciples. That's what Jesus said to do, right? In the Great Commission, that we are to make disciples of all the world. And, you know, all the world is right there outside of our doors. Um, and, um, and if we just say, you know, the Episcopal Church welcomes you, well, why, why would they want to be welcomed by our little club? What, is that, what we, does that mean? Right. Yeah. If we so are what? not forming disciples who right. are going to, to be personally transformed and transform the world, then we are not doing what Jesus called us to do. And so um, my time as my vision as bishop is that we are going to be moving into a time of forming disciples and doing what Jesus has called us to do. Okay, so we have a, a person who is one of our regular viewers and usually comments on the side. And one of her um, uh, sort of consistent pushing is, you know, she's part of the Episcopal Church, but in her circles, most of the people don't uh, want to be like don't want to be associated with Christians because of the way that Christians have treated historically marginalized groups. We've been doing the marginalized, right? And so. Um, she always has this temptation to sort of go like, well, not all Christians are like that. I'm part of this group. And, and that's really, for her, really empowering to be able to say like, look, there are Christians who aren't that thing. But then we've talked about on the show, like we also don't want to get like, oh, we're better than other Christians. So, and, and I've commented that, you know, coming from another, I came from the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church. That's my tradition. And I've, you know, whenever you go to an Episcopal church, when you go to the confirmation classes, when you go to whatever, you hear people talk about, I'm a recovering Catholic, or I'm a, I'm, I'm a recovering this or that. And I've, I've always found it on one hand, liberating that people have found a space in the Episcopal church for themselves, where they are truly and genuinely welcomed as themselves. But also a little, I get a little um, frustrated that we don't always know how to talk about what we are we oftentimes talk about what we aren't. aren't. Yeah. Well, we're not those kinds of Christians. We're not that. But as you just said, not only does the world hunger and thirst for the gospel, but we actually believe that the Episcopal Church is a, has a compelling 
uh, uh, gospel narrative and, and gospel way of being in the world that could be really meaningful for a lot of people if we could just break out of these shells, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm curious if that, if you have a, going along what you're saying, I'm just thinking about like, how do you articulate the, the in a positive sense, what we're about rather than what we aren't? Well, I think, again, that is a matter of forming disciples in our congregation. Um, it, that If our congregation's mission is to form disciples, then, um, then they will each be discerning their own ministry in the world, and they will go out and uh, demonstrate by their actions, by their presence, by uh, the way they love other people, um, who they are, so that, um, you know, Yes, I think the Episcopal Church has sort of labored without a real identity for a long time. Right. And, um, and, you know, right now our identity is, is sort of based on, you know, the Episcopal Church welcomes you, which, you know, and, and really it's okay for you to be LGBT or whatever it is. Um, and, that, and that's all true in most churches, in most congregations. Um, and yet it is passive, you know, it it is again, welcoming people into a club that is our club. Right. And we, um, I think we need to go back to the very beginning and learn how to be committed disciples. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I, when I uh, at my first diocesan convention in 2019, um, I called the diocese to three years of focusing on church mission. And year one was to be the year of discipleship because everything else you do is based on discipleship. That's the vertical dimension. It is, it's how we are connected to God and to Jesus um, and to the Holy Spirit. I don't want to leave out any, you know, anyway. <laughs> the whole triune reality. <laughs> got to get the whole trinity together. Yeah. <laughs> and Holy Spirit, all of them. Anyway. Um, uh, and, but then, uh, the pillars of church mission, I think there are three. There's discipleship, that's the vert- vertical dimension. Year two was going to be the year of evangelism. That is how we love each other by uh, by proclaiming the good news of Christ. And year three was the year of service. That is how we love each other. If, if uh, evangelism is loving each other in words, um, service is lo- loving each other with deeds. Um, we are probably about to reboot the year of evangelism, which was 2021, um, because we weren't able to do in the pandemic um, what we wanted to do with the year of evangelism. So we're gonna, we're gonna start over with that one. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing about the pandemic is perhaps it allowed many people to, to go deeper into their habits of discipleship, prayer and um, Bible study and so forth. Not everybody, some people oh. just drifted away from the church, but, um, but, I'm, but anyway, now I've forgotten what your original question was. <laughs> I mean, I guess you're, but you're hitting on it. We, we, I was talking about what we thought the, uh, what, what, what do we say we are instead of just what yeah. we aren't. And I, well, so, I think yeah. that whole, like the Episcopal church welcomes you, like welcomes you to what, like, right. are, I ideally, I think we'd answer that question, like welcomes you into a meaningful relationship with Jesus, like a life-changing, um, relationship with the living God, like, right. and you know, unfortunately, there are a lot, there are a lot of churches that do that really well. And there are a lot of churches that like, maybe don't do that as well. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I was thinking, um, when I write sermons, I, um, I often go back through them and delete everywhere where it says Christ and add Jesus instead, because in the Episcopal church, I think that we too often will retreat into ab, 
more abstract concepts. Um, And we need to start with Jesus. We need to start with a living encounter with Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. And we need to let Jesus challenge us. Um, Jesus still 2000 years later can be offensive, you know, when he says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek and do not judge lest you be judged. Well, those things are just as offensive now as they were 2000 years ago. And we have to allow ourselves to be uh, confronted by those challenges. And, you know, if we sort of retreat into larger concepts, which are very important, like Christ is the anointed and, you know, those are things we need to explore. But if we retreat into uh, seeing God as sort of this universal consciousness or something um, that we can't quite define, then then we are excusing ourselves from that living encounter with Jesus, who was a person. my heart's on fire right now. You're just, I, mean, I, know, I was just like, I, yes, preach. Yes, like, I, 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 um, I have, uh, we have a mutual friend. Actually, all three of us have a mutual friend um, to the degree that someone can be friends with Scott Gunn. Uh, we're all, no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, we have a mutual friend, Scott Gunn, and he is here in Cincinnati. And I, about a year into my ministry, he and I were getting to know each other. And he said, so, you know, I've checked around about you. You know, like, uh, I'm like, well, what have you heard? He goes, well, the one complaint I heard is the kind of complaint that I don't mind you getting. And I was like, well, what's that? And he said, well, apparently, you know, you t- apparently, according to this person, you talk about Jesus too much. And I was like, that's exactly the kind of complaint I want to get, right? So um, I definitely uh, had a, a, a parishioner who sat with me one day and said, you know, I'd, I mean, I'd probably come to church more if he'd be willing to talk about Jesus less. And I was just like, well... Uh, we're at an impasse because yeah. like Jesus is literally the reason we're here. Yeah. And I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to not talk about the reason that we're here, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in us as a church um, claiming and reclaiming the name of Jesus. Um, um, I think our presiding Bishop has done a phenomenal job of exactly mm-hmm. what you're describing. And we've, d- we've dug into the way of love here at this church. We could go further and we're going to, and, and we've dug into becoming beloved community as well. And those are two spaces. Those are two national church initiatives. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's exciting to be able to be excited about national church initiatives, but, <laughs> but those are exciting because they're centered on Jesus, um, both in language and in spirit, mm-hmm. but also in, in it, So it goes to that point of what Kira, what you were saying, like, um, welcome to, into what, the way that I, when I was trying to describe the way of love to my parish at first, I was like, if we're going to invite people in, there has to be a there there. Mm-hmm. And our, I love our church. And this is a really wonderful parish. The community here is so strong. I don't think that it's a weak community. I think it's a strong community. It's how do we articulate what is special about our community and why we love it? Right. right? And I, when I was a, a rector in a congregation, um, I, I used to just start rolling my eyes when, you know, I'd ask people, why do you like nativity? Why, why are you here? And they'd say, oh, you know, the music is so great. And I just love the friendly people. And, you know, the sermons make me think and I'm like, okay, where, where in that? Uh, thank you for the compliment, but right. where, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Yes. Yeah. 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 I want to hear about where you've seen Jesus. And if we don't have clergy that can talk about Jesus, Yes. If our sermons aren't about what Jesus ha- is doing, and I, I've I've got I've got a, a a bone to pick with Christians about this, and I think I've 
complained about this with Kira before, but I don't, I can't, I can't handle what would Jesus do? Cause it implies that Jesus isn't present now acting in the world, right? Mm-hmm. What would Jesus do is a, like, if Jesus were around today, right. what would Jesus do? What well, is Jesus doing? Right, what is Jesus doing <laughs> yeah. right now, right? Yeah. By the power of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, how is Jesus moving in this world? And where is Jesus' presence in this world? I'm like, that's what's interesting. So the whole, like, what would Jesus do? People were so excited because it was like, well, we're talking about what Jesus would do. I mean, okay. Yeah. But again, it creates this separation that's not there. Yeah. And it like portrays Jesus as this like sort of moral or ethical, like right. exemplar, which I mean, Jesus certainly was, sure. but like, where's the you know, where's the divine in that? Like, instead of like, oh, Jesus was just like this perfect person who always, you know, used the right fork at, you know, a fancy dinner. Like, that's not, that's not it. It becomes a thought, it becomes a thought experiment. Well, and it invites us to, uh, to tame Jesus and recreate him, imagine him in our own image and, uh, and say, he would do exactly what I'm doing. And that's why I'm doing it. Uh, Yes, because I'm just being like, he would be. Oh, I love this. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, th- this delves into what, what our, the first question we got was like, you know, wh- where where do we see, uh, we had a, a husband ask a question and then his wife chimed in. He said like, where do you see the church in America in 50 years? And then his wife was like, wait a minute, where do you see it in five years? <laughs> Which I thought was like a really good, uh, really good sort of dynamic there. Like, you know, one person in the marriage being like, so how, like when we really cast out, like, and the other person's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, what about right now? Like, what is, you know, so, so like, I don't know. I mean, some of what you're talking about is describing, I think your vision for where the church can go in the next five to 50 years. Yeah. I was uh, speaking to a priest in our diocese, who's uh, relatively new, uh, who was saying, you know, our church is sort of at a crossroads. We need to decide if what we're here to do is to care for the dwindling number of faithful or to start a new, a new mission and, and do something new with different people. And, and she said, you know, uh, both of those options are reasonable options to choose, but we're, we need to see what the, what the church is willing to do. Um, and, you know, so if you if you read all the projections out there, you know, the Episcopal Church on current tra- trajectory is going to be dead by 2030 or whatever. Um, and uh, well, uh, I guess we could say, you know, it was good while it lasted, right. um, you know, uh, and God is does not depend on the Episcopal Church to do God's work. So um, but we can we can also say we have a treasure to share. What we are doing in the Episcopal Church um, with our sacramental um, way of worship, our sacramental consciousness, um, our, our commitment to inclusion, all of those are really important aspects of how we follow Jesus. But how we follow Jesus is the main thing. So if we are following Jesus, Jesus sent out laborers into the vineyard um, and, uh, and if we're willing to do that, which Jesus calls us to do, then the church will, I think, explode with growth, but look very different in, um, in whatever the person asked 50 years, but, but even in five years, you know, we will in five years, 
we will probably have a number of those congregations that are still dwindling because they're aging and they haven't made that decision to, to change. And we will have a few congregations that are uh, exploding with growth in ways that we did not anticipate because they, they made intentional efforts to be disciples themselves and to bring the gospel to people who, you know, 10, 20 years ago would, you know, we'd have informally said, though, you know, they're, they're not Episcopalian types, you know, right. Um, but because it, it's really hard to change. It's so hard to change. Yeah. It's so hard to change. It's scary. Um, I had a parishioner, a, a vestry member at my previous church. We made a change in the liturgy. We made a few changes. And she said, you know, look, I'm, I'm for this change. So before I say anything else, she's like, I'm with you. You got me. You got my support. I would like, and then she said, now that we've established that I'm on your team and that I'm going to support this change, I'd like you to invite you to consider what we lose by making this change. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh? Like, cause you just said you were for it. And she's like, oh, of course I'm for it. But all change brings loss. Mm -hmm. Even when it's a good change and even when it's a right change, it brings loss. Have you reflected on what we're losing? Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but yeah. are you as the leader aware of that loss so that you can pastor to that and then lead us into that, into what we gain and all that rest. But it's that idea of like, so, and so then this um, um, book that I read about change in churches said something like, like, you know, people, we say people are scared of change and, and they are, but mostly it's because people are scared of loss, mm -hmm. right? And they can't see past the loss to see what the change might bring. Right. So I brought, I was bringing in kind of a new generation into my previous church and I had one parishioner say to me in front of others. So it was very like, not secretive, just sort of like during a meeting was like, I think it's really wonderful that, that all these new people are coming to the church, but I think that it's important that they rise up to our level of worship and we don't sink down to theirs. Wow. And, yeah. and like, it, and it was, it was fascinating because a couple of the other people like looked over me like, how's this going to go? But, <laughs> but, but she was, there was, it was earnest. It wasn't, there was no irony in it. And there wasn't even rancor. It was more just like, look we do this beautiful thing. It's awesome that you're bringing people into them, into it. Now get them where we are, which is, which is a deeply colonized and colonizing way of thinking of evangelism, yeah. which, with which, in which most of us were raised. Yes. So um, a, a few years ago, I, uh, I was serving on executive council and uh, of the Episcopal church. And um, one day, a, a, a little group of us got got it in our heads to write an evangelism charter for the Episcopal Church. Um, and so, uh, you know, I sat down with Stephanie Spellers and Frank Logue and a couple other people, and we wrote this thing. And so at some point, we we got the the idea to <laughs> to do the Abraham Lincoln thing and say, this is it's evangelism um, of yes. the church, yes. by the church yes. and for the church. Yes. So evangelism of the church is we got people already in the church who are not disciples. We need to become disciples. Evangelism by the church is those, those actions that you take to go out into the community and connect right. with people and share right. the story of Jesus. But evangelism for the church is the recognition that every person that we encounter is going to transform us. Mm. And, and they, are, they are going to um, challenge us to make changes in ourselves um, that will that will help us become more like the body of Christ. So if if our church has um, twenty elderly Anglo's in a in a in a community that's uh, you know eighty five percent Latino or whatever it is, um, 
that church does not look like the body of Christ and needs to be converted. And the people who come to us will teach us more about our own gospel. They will teach us more about what it means to be right. the body of Christ and what it means to allow Christ. Now I'm saying Christ, which I just said. You've named Jesus enough that we trust yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Know so are you talking about the, the I believe in the, Christ. The, I'm not, you know, don't criticize me for that. I just no want worries. to understand Jesus. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, the, we allow Jesus to transform us in the face right. of the people who come to who who become a part of our community. Is this the statement on the page? We seek, name, and celebrate Jesus' loving presence in the stories of all people. Then invite everyone to more. Is it that that evangelism statement from the National Church? Well, yeah, and I mean uh, that was part of it. Right, right. Invite everybody to more, and I would say I would say a little more specifically, invite invite people to follow to follow, follow Jesus. Jesus and be transformed by Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're in the trans, I mean, we're part of this, we're being transformed. Yeah. I, it is uh, encouraging to me to like, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, Bishop Frank Logue and, and some of the other bishops I know who've been recently, you know, elected uh, in the past, you know, say like three to five years, that there are like a number of church planters in that yeah. uh, cohort. And that's, um, I think that's a shift that really bodes well and is a positive uh, is a positive one you know the thing about being a church planter uh it's it's is that you see miracles happen every day and and come to believe that if the holy spirit were not in it there's no way these things would have happened and so you can't be a church planter and uh and and not understand that the holy spirit is with you um, and not understand that that Jesus is present and active in the world. So it's not just then what we bring to this group where we're planting. It's how we we are transformed, and 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 it's the, the presence of the Holy Spirit transforms all who are in the midst of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and, I, you know, I I go back and read sermons I I preached you know back at the beginning of being a church planter, and I thought I didn't really I didn't really understand it yet. I didn't, I didn't get it. I hadn't seen the Holy Spirit at work as much. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure that, that 10 years from now, I'll go back and, you know, read my sermon from last Sunday and say the exact same thing. Yeah, I didn't yeah. understand it yet. I hadn't seen it all yet. But <laughs> so I, I think, I think it's Stanley Hauerwas. It says like the, that when, when we, when two people get married, they make vows they couldn't possibly understand. Yeah, right. And, and they wouldn't make them <laughs> if they knew what they were getting themselves into. And right. I, I remember, so there was, I was actually in conversations with your former diocese, Arizona, about the possibility of a plant um, in um, Gilbert mm. uh, a while back. This was a while back. And, right. um, and uh, I called up a friend, uh, a friend of mine who was my mentor, um, who had planted a church and I'd been part of that church plant with him and helped him with that. And I was like, he was like, he said, do you need to plant a church? And I was like, no, no, but I mean, it'd be, I'd like it. And he goes, but do you need to? And I was like, no, I don't think so, but I'd like it. And he goes, don't do it. I said, wow. what? He goes, he said, don't do it unless you need to. Because yeah. he goes, I needed to do this. And I still go, what have I done? I mean, it's a natural thing. Yeah. But the reason I bring that up is I actually, and I give that advice to some degree about like getting married or having children. You know, people are like, we're getting married. And they expect me to be like, congratulations. But a lot of times I'm like, okay, why? Me too, yeah. And they're like, what? I'm like, is that a thing you need to do? And they're like, what, what do you mean need to? I'm like, I mean, can you live without marriage? And they're like, 
no. And I was like, oh, well then congratulations by all means. It's fantastic. (laughs) Like, but it's like, it's like, it's that same idea of like, it's like, but, but we're at this place right now in the church where like the only reason we are making changes is because we have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The people who would not do anything digitally. All, I mean, my Bible study, uh, we have, you know, um, but by that second week, we started Bible study up remotely. All these people who were in this space, we had 30, 35 people on Zoom who yeah. would not, if you'd said, we're going to do this remotely or we're going to do it, they'd just be like, what are you talking about? That's not a thing. They're the most ready to go. They've, tr- they've been transformed. Yeah. Because, yeah. But, o- but only because they had to or it wasn't going to happen. Right. And, you know, I've, I've, you've probably heard it said that your calling from God is that thing that you cannot not do. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and so now I go back and look at that time when I said, you know, I need to become a church planter. And I think, was I crazy? Well, and like, you know, at that point, if, if I had known everything that was to come, I would have said, no, yeah, no, 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 but you're caught up. But, yeah. But, but, that's but the I Holy Spirit. Not, not do it at that point. Um, Are you going to look back and say the same thing about being a bishop? Like, what was I, what was I thinking? Yeah, <laughs> I might, you know, uh, when I was, um, I, they had a retreat for, you know, candidates, the, the nomination committee did. And I, um, at the end of that retreat, I looked around and I said, I love these people in this place and I want to be here and minister with them. It was the thing I couldn't not do. Of course, I didn't know how the election would turn out, but I knew that it was, it felt like a call. Mm. Um, and it, you know, 10 years from now, I'll probably go, oh, I'm exhausted. What was I thinking? This is crazy. But anyway, yeah. No, but that's fantastic. I mean, that was another question that we got was sort of like, what, when you were discerning, how did you discern uh, that this was a diocese that you wanted to serve in this way? And it sounds a lot like how I felt about my call to being rector of this church is a different job, but it's mm-hmm. that sense of like, oh my gosh, I love these people and I want to, I, I can't not do this. Right. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, even with the pandemic and everything, it's, I've felt confirmed in my call almost every day, mm. almost every day since I've been here. I love it. Um, so, uh, you know, God puts you in the places you're supposed to be, I suppose, but you have to be willing to accept. You have to have that. Yeah um that sense of uh being willing to take a chance because everything is a everything is a risk yeah 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 final questions for for our bishop here kira um you know we've got like five minutes left so i think we need to move on to our closing question every week which is uh bishop susan what have you been listening to and i guess as you talked about church planting and um planting around a charismatic personality i wonder if you have been listening to the rise and fall of mars hill (laughs) oh my gosh no (laughs) no i don't need that stuff i heard that guy speak one time and it was so incredibly offensive i never want to hear it yeah yeah we're Um, all set yeah but uh i you know i i i listen to a lot of podcasts mostly wait wait don't tell me but um but uh as far as music um i'm I, I was uh, sort of looking through my favorites on Spotify and realized that almost everything was like a country artist. And I was like, well, how did this happen? I've never <laughs> been a country music fan. And, you know, one I, of us, one of us. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and I, I went to, I went to high school in Austin. I was like, I am not going to be one of those people. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, I, 
um, you know, I've been a country music fan forever. I, I remember um, my husband and I went to a New Year's Eve concert that was at the Armadillo World Headquarters back when that was a thing in Austin. Yes. And it was a Joe Ely concert. Mm-hmm. And but we heard this music playing over the loudspeaker. And it was like, oh, this is incredible. So we went to a person that worked there and said, who is that? And he said, um, that's Steve Earle. Go out and buy all of his albums as, as soon as possible. Yeah. And Steve Earle has been my favorite ever since. Mm. But here's a story I want to tell you. Another person in that genre is Robert Earl Keane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, Fantastic. Um, he's yes. And if you I have I have various stories about various songs, but if you go and listen to the song Gringo Honeymoon, you heard mm. that song? I'm looking it up uh, right now. It's a, it's a story, it's a story okay. you know, that he, he, um, he, I guess these two people on their honeymoon walk down to the river and they cross the river and they're in Mexico and they go to a bar and whatever. And the first time I heard that song, I looked at my husband and I said, oh my gosh, we did that too. Hmm. Because, we, it, okay, so what it you literally did, describes your honeymoon? Not on our honeymoon, but we used to go to Big Bend National Park every January because it's the only time the weather is good enough, but and hike and so forth. And there's this place there was years ago in um, where you could walk down to the Rio Grande River and a guy would pull you across to the other side on a little raft and you walk up into Mexico. Nobody cares about passports, no nothing. Um, and you go into a little town, you go to a bar and you sit there and you, and you, you know, have a, a cerveza or whatever. Um, and that's exactly what happens in that song, except that he meets a cowboy who's running from the DEA and that didn't happen to us. But, <laughs> but we're like, oh my gosh, we know that place and wow. we know exactly where he was. And the thing is that years later in 2018, um, I wrote a sermon for uh, clergy renewal of vows uh, in the Diocese of Oklahoma that was that used that story. Um, and it, it was one of those experiences of writing a sermon where I thought, I didn't write this. I don't know where this came from. Yeah. And I think it's one of the best sermons I've ever written. And it wasn't me, in fact. And it was about, you know, the calling of being an ordained person and about how we live in a borderland between heaven and earth mm-hmm. and that Jesus is that borderland but we are the people who are called to recognize that we are at this intersection and think what it's like to stand at the altar and mm-hmm. hold up your hands and and you are at the intersection of heaven and earth and you are not in control you know like you can stand there at the altar and have your mind somewhere else. Last Sunday, I was standing there like this, and I realized there was a bug crawling on my vestments right here. And, and you can't in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer go, ah, go away. <laughs> but you have to be like, you have to, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you're standing there with your mind on various other things, and yet the Holy Spirit is there. Mm. And the Holy Spirit is doing the work. And one time, uh, you know, a guy told me, and one of these services where my mind was elsewhere you know you break the bread and you hold it for an instant he said when you did that I I saw the face of Jesus between the two halves of the bread and I thought oh my gosh Mm -hmm. I was in I was in that intersection that borderline between heaven and earth and I didn't even know it and I didn't make it happen but Mm -hmm. oh my gosh what an incredible privilege it is isn't it by the way, another another tex- great Texas songster, Towns Van Zant, he talks about when he's written a great song every once in a while, he's like, I don't mind saying it's great because I don't really even feel like it was me. 
Right. Right. Like there are songs that are good that I wrote and I'm really, those, okay, those are good songs or those are songs. He said, but sometimes I'll write a song and it's a great song and I'll be like, I acknowledge it's great because I don't like, oh, look at that. Like, sort of the vessel yeah. or the conduit and we've, for and it. All, I, and I bet all three of us have preached, as you just said, a sermon where, like I've preached sermons where, um, and Chris Chris was there for one of these sermons where I preached a sermon where I was like, when it was over, I was like, okay, what just happened? Like, not, not that I blacked out or anything, but just sort of like, what, where, what was that? Yeah. And those end up being the ones where maybe something else took over or we allowed the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. So yeah, that, that sermon's on my blog if you want to go read it. But, I'm going to go look for it. Do you like Lyle Lovett? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Sure. Oh, that song, sure. that, that, that church song. Oh my gosh. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> okay, Kira, it's your turn. What have you been listening to? Um, so I've been listening to an artist called Big Red Machine. They just came out with a new album. Um, and they've got some like good... Uh, Okay, I know I'm um I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, which I have been for a long time since she was a country music star. (laughs) Um, and she has a little guest turn on that album along with some other really good folks. And it's in the kind of um the national ilk of of music, sort of emo-y rock. Um it's a it's gonna be a great fall album once it finally cools down here. (laughs) Um, feels. Yeah, just like curl up in a rainy, yeah. you know, put your warm sweater on kind of kind of music. So you know where they got their name, right? The Big Red Machine was the nickname for a very dominant uh, Cincinnati Reds team from the seventies oh. that won two World Series in a row. And so they're Midwesterners, and they took their name right from us. So that's great, uh, and that that segues to me beautifully. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Rolling Stones because their drummer Charlie Watts died. And whenever mm-hmm. someone dies, I sort of like, even if I listen to them a lot, I'll kind of jump back in and go just kind of like memorialize that. And then there's this um, this uh, woman who put out only a couple of albums in the 60s named Karen Dalton. She's a folk singer from the Greenwich Village scene. And though she hated when people said this, I'm going to say it because she can't stop me. She's so almost like a, a, a folk version of Billie Holiday. Hmm. Um, really like her voice is got that sort of same uh, timber to it. Um, and she's phenomenal. So look up Karen Dalton. Um, you will be, uh, uh, she does a, a cover of the, um, of the Otis Redding song. I love you more than words can say, but it's this sort of like, like, like slow cooking folk version of this fantastic soul song. So anyways, Karen Dalton in Rolling Stones. That's what I've been listening to the last week. Um, we're going to wrap up because we're past time and we know that we know that while we our schedules are interesting a bishop's schedule is usually very very full uh bishop susan thank you so much thank for being a part so of this much. well it has been delightful i've Likewise. really enjoyed it so um i i hope you all have a wonderful day my day's just starting so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great afternoon. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna yeah it's 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 nap time over here in Cincinnati. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um well we're gonna say goodbye to everybody Uh, Thank you all for joining us and we'll see Kira and I will see you next 